The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Morning, church. Merry Christmas to all of you. That side, popular side today. They're packed over there. It is good to see you. It's a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. We'll be in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, looking at verse 9 through 11. Preaching out of a, well, I got to be careful how I say this, I guess. A new Bible, not a newly written Bible, not nothing like that. It's the same Bible we always go to, but the staff was nice enough to purchase me a, a Bible. Mine was missing Genesis through Joshua. They saw that as a problem. They put a little note, please read this, and they gave it to me. I don't, don't know what that means, but... If I seem uh, scattered this morning, it's because I'm, I'm not used to this, to this Bible. The new thing in Bibles, if you, most, I grew up where you had two columns. This one just has one big column. Kind of confuses me at times, so if I seem lost, that's why. Not because I'm not prepared, but it's the staff's fault, the new Bible. <clears throat> Today we get to joy. As Pastor Scott mentioned, the fourth candle Focusing on the word joy, we've been using Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 for the past four weeks, and we get to the close of this section. When we think of the word joy or or rejoice, as we've sang about in both songs that we looked at uh, this morning, we can find this all throughout the Christmas story that many of us are very familiar with. Uh, if you if you go through the gamut of, of the different characters, I guess, that we see within the, the Christmas story, we again and again and again see them being overcome with joy, and that being expressed by rejoicing. <clears throat> we see this with Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verses 46 through 55, as she would find out that she is pregnant with Jesus. She goes and sees her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, and it causes her so much joy of what God is doing that she bursts out really in, in song, and she proclaims a song there in Luke chapter 1. And just praises the Lord for, for what he is doing. The joy within her, she couldn't hold it in. We see this as well with John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. You remember, he doubted God a little bit of what he was doing, and so God caused him to not be able to speak. But then when, when John was born, he, he's filled with this joy and, and rejoicing inside of him, and God opens his mouth back up, and what does he do? He praises the Lord because of the joy that is inside of him, of, again, of what God is doing. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, we see the angels coming to the shepherds. And what do they do? They are rejoicing. They're singing praises. In response to the shepherds seeing Jesus there in the manger in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, scripture tells us that they are overcome with joy and that they are rejoicing again at what God is doing. And later, when Joseph and Mary would take Jesus to the temple, they would find a man there, Simeon, and in the, towards the end of Luke chapter 2, who again is overcome with joy because of a promise that God had made to him, and it has come to fruition. He has seen the Messiah. And so there is joy in his heart. And then later, a woman named Anna in the temple, the same thing. Or in Matthew chapter 2, we see the story of the wise men. And what do they do when they finally get to Jesus? They get to his home and they see the star and they get there. It says they are overcome with, with joy and they worship 
and rejoice, this baby. I think a fair question to ask as you read the Christmas story, if, if you haven't been like saturated with Christian culture and been in the church all the time and you're reading this story for the first time, the, the question I guess could really be asked, why so much joy in this baby? Right? Why, what's so special about this baby? I mean, even, even today, when we find out somebody is pregnant and it goes all the way to where they get to give birth to this baby that's usually, for the most part, surrounded with, with joy, there are circumstances where maybe that might not be the case, but and most of the time, there's all this joy. You know, a, a new life is being born. There's a baby. There's someone being added to the family, right? We're going to have a, a new member of the family to corrupt and influence in our own little ways that we do, and we're excited about that. We, we can't wait for that. Some seem to find more joy in this than others, I guess, but what is this joy that, that is coming from this? Where are all these feelings coming from? Is it that it's new life? Is it is it maybe just the cuteness of a baby and you get to hold that baby and cuddle with that baby? Maybe that's where the joy is coming from. Is that what's happening here in Matthew and in Luke and in the accounts we have of the baby Jesus? Is the joy just because of new life? It seems at times that that's what Advent, that's what Christmas season's been reduced to. You hear it in phrases like, I'll, I'll tell you what Christmas is about. It's about love and family. That's, that's what this is coming down to. This is how it gets reduced, right? We, we think that's what this Christmas season is about because that's what Jesus did. It's just about love and family and what we do together. Is that really what this is all about? Is that really what is supposed to bring me joy in my life forever? Is my family supposed to sustain my joy in my life? You might not know my family. I don't know your family, but I can guess that'd be a hard task for them to give you joy everlasting, to make sure that you're always abundantly filled with joy that is overflowing, that would cause you to cry out like these people we see in the Christmas story of Mary and Zacharias, angels and so forth. And so can this joy that is being talked about in Scripture that we see from Mary, is, can it be achieved in this life to where in the midst of all these difficulties that we face, and let's face it, we face a lot of difficulties. This morning, I, I woke up early, not on purpose. Somebody, one of the kids woke me up. I said, I might as well get up. And I started making jerky. That's what I started doing this morning. If you want a little video into my life, that's what I was doing at six in the morning. And I turned on the TV and just berated with bad news for an hour. Just bad news after bad news after bad news. And they would try to lighten it up, you know. Oh, you can go to downtown Detroit and you can sit outside and eat. Well, that sounds awesome. That's what I want to do. I mean, that was the joy that they were trying to fill me with. That was the joy maybe that they were trying to sustain me with. It seems as if even the media today knows that with all this bad news, we have to some way give some joy to some people. And so they try their different ways to do that. But we know, you know, it just cannot be sustained in those sorts of things. So I guess the question that we ask is, is this the same type of joy that Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, is this the joy that they were speaking of when looking at, at this baby? Just another cute baby? Just something to be happy about for a little bit? 
I say the answer to that is no, and I say that we've been talking about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 for the, for the past four weeks, and that's why we've chosen this, this passage, because this passage speaks to us how we can have joy that sustains forever, that is, that is lifetime, that it will, you will always have it, that, it, that it cannot be stolen from you or taken away from you. If we find the answer to that, like I said in Romans chapter 5, and so look at it with me. We'll, we'll read verses 1 through 11. I'll do a little background of 1 through 8, of which we've already covered, and then we'll look at verses 9 through 11 together. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, not, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So just backing up and looking at verses 1 through 8 a little bit of some things that we have seen and try to explain them very briefly this morning. The first thing that we see there in verse 1, a word comes out about justified, and it goes throughout these verses of, of justification. And what does that mean? Well, we've, we've seen through this passage that by faith in Jesus and what he accomplished in his life and in his death, that by faith we can be justified. We, we can have the penalty that we face before God the Father, it is, it is paid for in full by none other than God the Father his, and his begotten Son. By him coming and dying on the cross, we can be justified of our sin. And that's an important thing. That's what justification is. That God has paid the price. And so we receive the righteousness of Jesus in our life by faith and trusting in him. But then it goes on after verse one and it talks, it talks more, or in verse one, I'm sorry, about the peace that we have with God. And so what God has done for us in this is he has made peace between himself and me so that now our relationship is perfect. I don't have to worry about him leaving me. I don't have to worry about him getting mad at me and, and running away from me and saying, Tim, you're just not meeting up to your end of the bargain because I don't meet up to my end of the bargain. Jesus did that for me. And so when God the Father sees Tim, he sees Jesus's perfection and righteousness. Not, not because I'm good, but if you're a Christian today, he sees, that's what he sees in you too. That, that's what he looks at. And so your relationship with God then is, is where it needs to be, always and forever. There is peace between you and God. And that relationship is, is so well that we saw last week in chapter two that what God the Father does is he doesn't just say, hey, we're good. 
Now leave me alone. It's not a relationship like that. He says, hey, we're good. Come here. Come here. Spend time in my courts. Be, be in my courts. Be in my presence. In fact, be in, be in my glory. And so through faith, we've been given access, ask believers, to God the Father. Therefore, because of that, our hope, the hope that we can have is a cemented hope in the glory of God and what he has done, again, and what he has accomplished. And so that word hope is not a, a wish. It's a, it's a cemented fact because it's not based on me. It's not based on me at all. It's based on him and the finished work of his son. And so I can rest assured in the hope that I have in God through Jesus. That's really good news. I mean, we could end on that. And that's the best news that we need, honestly. Because I could give you the word, my word the best I can and say, listen, I promise you, 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'll be at your game. Parents, you can say that to your kids. I will be there. You can bank on me. But you know, all it takes is a deer running in front of you. You're not there. All it takes is a flat tire. And you're not there. It's out of your control. I mean, you can think you're in control. You're not in control. But when it comes to our relationship with God, no, no deer is going to take that away. No flat tire is going to erase that. Nothing I can do is going to stop that. And so my hope is cemented in the glory of God. And so, again, no matter what trouble I might find myself in in this world, and we see this in verses three through five, no matter what tribulation, no matter what strife I might face, Nothing can shake that hope that I have through faith in God. The things that this world may throw at me cannot erase my relationship with God because, again, it's not based on the things of this world. It's based on Jesus and his finished work. And so as we continue through in verses 6 all the way through verses 8, we see that God's love for us, God loves us, and we see that God has then given us the Holy Spirit to indwell inside of us, to help us to, to grow and to be molded and shaped into the image of his son and how the Holy Spirit does that work in our life. And we know that God loves us. Why? Because of the work of the son. That has to be love. If the father would send his only begotten son to die in my place, what more love could be shown to me than that? I mean, it, it's great that the staff got me a, a Bible, but they didn't die for me. They don't do anything for me that can save me from the wrath of God, yet God made that way through his son, and that proves to us the love that he has. And so it would be foolish for me then, as somebody who's been saved by the grace of God, to come to some situation in my life, some, some circumstance in my life, which we all face difficult ones, and to look at God and to say, God, it's obvious by this, you don't love me. We don't have the right to say that as believers because we know he's made the ultimate sacrifice in the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, you might feel that way sometimes. You might feel like God doesn't love you. You, you might feel these ways, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. Your feelings don't matter at that moment. It's what you know. I know God loves me because I know he sent his son to die for me. I know he saved me by his grace. And I know the things I'm going through are difficult, but I know that according to Romans chapter five, no trial, no tribulation 
is going to separate the love that God has for me. It's not going to happen. So while I feel that way at this moment, I know better. I know better. And we know this because of the love that he has. Now, an important thing that we have to take note of, and it really propels us into what we're going to talk about, and I'll talk about it more in a minute. But notice when God poured his love out on us while we were sinners. That's really important for us. While, believer, if you're a Christian this morning, and I don't know if everybody in here is, I'd have to believe we're not. But while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Not while you were a good person. Not after you cleaned yourself up. You know, not after you put soap in your mouth because of the potty words you say. Then he poured his love out on you. No. While you were sinners, while you were enemies with God, Christ died for you. So God has assured our salvation, and we know this. Why? Because his love for us, even while we were sinners, even while we were enemies of his. And as we get to verse 9, we see it start to talk about the blood of his son that was necessary in order for us to be forgiven. So, so far, in verses 1 through 8, we've, talk, we've focused on justification. We've focused on how God has reconciled us, reconciliation, made peace with us. We've talked about the assuredness of our salvation, and we even last week talked about our glorification, how we will be glorified one day, and that is cemented and sealed. It's not based on you again. You will be glorified as a believer. We've focused on these things. And what we'll see this morning in the rest of this is Paul's going to focus on our future salvation. And we'll talk about that more. That might sound confusing right now, but we'll talk about it. On a future salvation from the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, how we will be freed and saved because of Christ. And it is on this promise where Paul then starts to talk about how we will have joy that overflows forever. It is on this promise that we will rejoice. And it's interesting because if you look at verse 9, it starts out with saying, uh, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more. It's like, wait a minute. I've been justified. I've been made right with God. I've been promised glorification. And you're telling me there's more? It sounds like an infomercial. Just wait. We'll double the offer if you act now. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like at this moment. Like, you're telling me all my sin is gone. You're telling me I have a right relationship with God. And you're telling me there's nothing that I did to deserve it or have to do to get it. I just believe in it and I get it. And now Paul's telling me, but wait, there's much more. And so look, verses 9 and 10 are kind of, they're very similar. And so we're going to kind of look at them together. The first part of verse 9, 9a It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. And then the beginning of verse 10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And then again, he'll say much more, but we just want to look at the first two parts. So we're looking here at the need for Christ's sacrifice. This is important. There was a need for Christ's sacrifice. And Paul reiterates this again. When we look at this baby, you know, we got... Baby Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I guess, in this little picture, they look a little old, honestly. What it really probably was. That's what we have pictured here. We look at this little baby. The joy, the joy that came to Mary, that came to these people, was the fact that the promise was this was the Messiah that was going to save people. Now, I don't know at that moment what Mary knew. Someone should write a song about that. But they, 
it might be, I don't know if she knew this, but that baby needed to die if it was going to actually be a sacrifice. Blood needed to spill. And we say, well, where do we get that from? Well, we get it in scripture, actually. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it tells us this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if Jesus didn't die and shed his blood, he's worthless to me. He's absolutely worthless to me. He might have some good teachings. He might bring some sort of joy into my life, but it's not an everlasting joy. He needs to die for my sins. There has to be blood to satisfy sin. It had always been this way. It was the same all throughout the, high, all throughout the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, if you go back to the books that I lost in my Bible before, if you go into those books, you will see that God had established a system where a high priest would go into a room to atone for the sins of everybody. But in order to do that, he would have to kill animals and take that blood and actually cover that room in it. And one of the most important parts that he would have to cover was a thing called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was a lid that went right on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where God's presence would reside in the Holy of Holies. And so the high priest would go in there and what was told to do is listen, God cannot reside in here. Why? There's too much sin. There's too much sin. And so There has to be forgiveness of sin before God can reside in here. And so what the high priest would do is he'd take that blood and he'd put it on the mercy seat. Now, inside of this ark that the mercy seat sat on was the law, the Ten Commandments, the rules that need to be followed. And the problem is when God would look down, he would see the law and he would see the people and say, you you ain't meeting the standard. I'm not coming down there. But when that animal would be killed and that blood would be spread over, all of a sudden there was forgiveness of sin because blood was shed. And that blood covered the law. And then God would forgive the sins of the people if everything was done perfectly. You see, all along, that's what had to take place. There needed to be blood because of sin. I mean, we even see it in the garden. When Adam and Eve would sin and they would try to cover up their embarrassment, What would God do? He didn't take plants and make something for them to wear. They would see an animal die, and then that would cover their sin. So even at the very beginning, we see that blood was necessary in order for there to be forgiveness. And for centuries, this is what took place. For centuries, this is what took place. Mary would have known this. Joseph would have known this. All the people in this story would know this. And what we see in this passage, what we already talked about a little bit, this blood was not being spilt for good people. This blood is actually being spilt for enemies of God. Now, what I'm about to say is pretty nitpicky, and I understand that. And you might call me like a a Bible nerd or something like that. That's okay. I think it's important for us to understand There is an order to salvation. And there's a reason there's an order. And if you understand this and you get a grasp on this, it will help you, I think, find even more joy in your relationship with God. It's what we've already been talking about. 
before you were ever reconciled to God, so before you ever had peace with God, you were justified by God. He paid the price for you before you were ever in a right relationship with him. Again, that's the whole died for his enemies, saved his enemies, saved sinners. And that's us in our walk with him. And I I think that's important for us because God justifies the sinner. I've said this so many times. I say it in my home. I say it everywhere. But when I stand before the judge, God, I haven't cleaned myself up and I can't. And when he says, Tim, this is the price you must pay, I can't pay it. I can't pay it. He says, you have to have perfection. And I've already missed that out. I missed it. And so I stand 100% guilty. But what he does is that picture of the judge coming off the judge chair and standing next to me and then saying, I'll pay his price. Tim, you go. Tim, you go free. God did that for me while I was his enemy, not his friend, not his adopted child, not somebody who loved him. He did that while I was an enemy of him. And then after he justified me, he reconciled me. He said, Tim, you're mine. I adopt you into my family. I love you. Now, listen, when we're talking about time with God, that's a weird thing. And you're saying, I mean, how often did it take 10 days for him to reconcile me? No, it's, it's, it's instant. I understand that. And that's why I say it's a bit nitpicky, but I know for me, it really clarifies some things because some of you this morning, maybe you haven't been in church in a long time. Maybe you're even a little embarrassed to walk into church. You feel a little dirty. I got to tell you that that's okay. That's absolutely okay. Now I'm not saying your sin is okay and you should keep doing that. But I'm saying you don't have to wash yourself up before you come to the Lord and trust in him. God saves the dirty. He justifies the sinner. And maybe, just maybe this morning, he wants to justify you by faith in his son, by faith in this little baby that we see in a manger. Well, if that doesn't convince you enough, Paul would say in the second half of verse 9 and the second half of verse 10, oh, you think that's cool. Wait a minute, there's much more. So look what he says. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, which we already talked about, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, Paul, what do you mean by that? Because this is Paul's big statement. This is what Paul's big statement is. Again, this is what he's saying. If through his death you have been forgiven of your sins, then imagine what it'll be like through his life on the day of judgment. Because when we get to the day of judgment and we have to face God, Jesus isn't sitting there dying again and again and again. No, he's he's standing there alive and well. And the promise that we have as believers, those who've been saved by God's grace, is Jesus will be standing there alive and well, and he will say, by proof of my life, this one's mine. This one's mine. The judgment does not fall on this one. I paid the price already. And so we see in Scripture, uh, in numerous places, honestly, the, the talk of this, of this judgment in Matthew 25 and Matthew 7. 
I'll read it for you. Matthew 25, this is, this is a long section of scripture, so please listen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now I'm not trying to preach this passage One might say, it looks like I got to go do things. No, the righteous enter the kingdom. The unrighteous do not. And we know all throughout what we've been reading, there are none righteous, no, not one. Well, then how do I get on the right-hand side? I must have the righteousness of Christ in my life. That's what we're talking about here. And the promise that we have as believers, what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter five is what God has promised you through the death of his son, by saving you, is not only have you been justified, not only have you been reconciled, you will be saved from that day of judgment. When you stand, you can know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the hope that he gives you, I will be ushered to the right-hand side as a sheep, and I will not hear the words, get away from me, into eternal judgment. You are not righteous. No, I will be guaranteed. I am guaranteed that I will be saved. Why? Because of the blood of the lamb in my life. That is what I trust in. That is what I believe in. And so Paul wants us to understand that. He wants us to know that. We are assured that on that day, we will be judged, not on our own doing, but on the sure foundation of Jesus. That's the promise that we are given here. And so Paul says, if he's willing to justify us through his death while we are his enemy, imagine the salvation he is going to give us by his life on that day of judgment. What a celebration. What an excitement that we get to be with him forever. And last week, we already talked about glorification, so I don't need to do that this week. So then Paul would end in verse 11 with again saying, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We see here, verses 1 through 10, the reason we are able to rejoice in God through Jesus is because he has reconciled us now to the Father. 
We rejoice, yes, in what he's already done. We rejoice in what we know he will do for us today and in the future. And so this is where our joy comes from. His mind is made up when it comes to you through Christ. And we find our reason to rejoice in that. But maybe the question that we ask, and we kind of talked about this last week, how do we rejoice? How do we, how do we have this joy? How do, we, how do we understand this joy? What, is it, what does it look like? Because I just, I don't feel joyful. I don't feel excited. I mean, if, if you guys know me very well personally, that would be my personality. I'm not joyful all the time. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not the best encourager. I, I do that in my own life too. And so this is something personally that I struggle with as I think, God, I preach these things and I believe these things and I know these things to be true and I have no doubt you are my savior. But man, sometimes I just don't feel the joy that I feel like I should feel as a good Christian. And so I struggle with that. I really do. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you feel that way this morning. You say, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been a Christian for whatever. And I'll be honest, like, especially this year, the joy just hasn't really been radiating. I'm really, I'm really, it's, I'm really struggling with it. So we ask the question, I think, how do, we, how do we have this joy? How do we rejoice in these things of God? Well, I think there's some helpful things here. Number one is this. I think you should know the depths of your heart. That's not a fun place to go. But it's something that we need to be doing is often looking into our heart to say, what am I trusting in? Where is my joy found? You know, what am I listening to and what am I relying on? And, and how am I dealing with that in my heart? And so a good example of that would be when you walk through these doors this morning, where was your heart? Were you coming in to, for a checklist to look good? To, were you look, coming to be entertained? Were you coming to hear the word of God? Were you coming to praise God? Like all these things we do have to ask ourselves. Why? Why am I doing what, am I do, what I'm doing? Where is my heart in this stuff? Grandmas and mothers, I, I'm not trying to disobey orders here when I say this, so please don't take it this way. But if you're cooking for your family this Christmas and people are coming order, over, why do you do that? Do you do it so you can complain about how long you've cooked? Is that, is that the reason? Do you do it out of obligation? I have to do it. You know, if I don't do it, we will starve. Nobody else is going to do it. I've got to do this. Do you do it because you love seeing your family come over? Is there a joy in doing that? I mean, I think that's the question, right, that, that we could ask. That's what I'm getting at. It's the first thing I have to do, I think, to really have joy is know the depths of your heart. And when I look at the depths of my heart, I do see sin. Still, this very day, there's sin in my heart. That leads me to the next thing that I need to know. I need to know and understand the work that God has done through his son in the past, in the present, and in the future. And that's what we've been preaching about for the last four weeks. <clears throat> I know he has cemented me by justifying me. And I know he has cemented me with assuredness and a hope that on that day of judgment in the future, I will pass through because of Christ. I know those things. And so when I look in the depths of my heart and I see sin, what I know is I know God has justified me even in that sin. 
Yes, I need to strive to overcome it. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves Tim, the sinner, and he saved me while he was his enemy, and I'm no longer his enemy. I'm his son. I am, I'm one of his chosen ones, that he has allowed me to be a part of his family. I am his and he is mine. Just, I don't know, last week. Was it last week? Amanda and I got to finally adopt serenity. Finally, years it took. And one of the questions, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for that, but okay. <clears throat> one of the things the judge said that interested me in the Zoom meeting that we had was you are saying, not only is she in your family, she's an heir now. That was a the thing they said. That caught me off guard because I'm like, wait, yeah. I don't know if Jackson and Easton and Aubrey caught that. They just got cut, and cut down <laughs> is what that means. But it struck a chord with me because that's what happened to me when God welcomed me in. I'm an heir. I'm an heir of his. And I, and I know this. Even though my heart still has sin and I still have these struggles, I know the work God has done for me in the past, in the present, and in the future. And I know that by faith, I believe this undoubtedly. Oh, Satan still tries to creep doubt in there sometimes. But I know I believe in it. I know I trust in it. And so I also know this. I must then be disciplined to keep focusing on God and the works that he's done. That's what my focus needs to be on. I need to allow the Holy Spirit to continue working in my life by the things that we talk about all the time, reading his word, fellowshipping with believers, taking communion, the Lord's Supper, doing these things that God has called me to do and be faithful to. Again, not so I'm earning anything, but because it constantly is refilling me over and over and over again with the joy that only he can provide. It's reminding me of the joy that I have been promised in my life because of God, not because of me. Many of you will know the song by Isaac Watts. We've sang it in many a Easter program. It says, as I survey the wondrous cross, right? On which the Prince of Glory died. Now, what does he say? He says, as I survey it. That means as I look at it, as I meditate on it, as I know everything about it, every little thing, just like if you had your yard surveyed, they're going to tell you how much you owe to the centimeter. As I survey that wondrous cross and understand everything that is happening there in that moment, that's when I start to understand joy. Now, you can't do that. Listen, you can't do that, Christian, by just coming to church once in a while. You can't do that by never opening your Bible. You can't do that by not being willing to study this thing. You can't do it on your own. We were just talking about that as a staff, how easy it is for pride to creep in when you go on your own and you fall into sin. It's so easy. You can't do these things. And so I must be diligent in my discipline, not falling prey, listen, not falling prey to the false spirituality that we find in our world today and sadly in many of our churches. The spirituality that puffs you up, that tells you, you are what's special. That tells you this book is about you and making you feel good. That's a false, false lie from Satan. 
This book is about him and what he has done. And it is amazing that he has allowed me to be part of his story. It's not about me. When I'm, when I'm dead and gone, there'll be many of pastors after me, better than me. They'll preach better than me. They'll be so much smarter than me. They'll do a better work than me. And even knowing that still, God has allowed me to be a part of his family. As a Christian, he's allowed you to be a part of his family. And as we understand God better, as we know him more, there is a deep joy that comes from within. It's a joy that's everlasting. It's a joy that in those moments where I don't feel very joyful, I rest assured knowing that joy is there though because God has promised it through what he's done. I don't feel like running around and screaming from the rooftops, Jesus, 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 everybody in this moment. But I do believe it. And I do have this joy deep within. And because of that, I can, rest, I can rejoice. I rejoice in the assuredness of it all. I rejoice in the fact that it's not based on me. I rejoice in the fact that it's not based on my feelings at the moment. I rejoice in who he is. And as we read the Christmas story, which we will read Christmas Eve and we'll read all through it, we'll do that, we have all that planned. This is the reason that the people in this story were rejoicing. They believed this baby was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the hope, the joy, and the peace that was necessary for all nations. They believed that Jesus was the restorer of all things, all things, spiritually created all these things and that within this baby was true joy that had never been understood in the world before him. I hope that's what you see when you look at the mangers. I hope that's what you understand when you see baby Jesus. I hope that in your life, in your relationship with God, I hope that it's not based on you. Sadly, a lot of people live that way. Sadly, a lot of preachers preach that way. You walk out of church with a heavy burden. A lot of people walk out of church sometimes super uplifted just to be knocked down instantly because what they heard wasn't real spiritual truth. It was this false spirituality that made them feel awesome for a minute. Like caffeine. You feel great, then you fall, you fall flat because it's fake. It's a fake thing, Right? my hope is that you trust Christ as your restorer, the author and finisher of your salvation, the only one who can save you and that you understand that you have peace with God the Father and that you have a hope that is cemented forever. And I do hope, just like I hope with me, that it causes me to rejoice in what he has done. This world offers so many good things, so many things that can be fun, so many things that you think you can find joy in. But I can promise you, the only thing that can sustain love, joy, hope, and peace is Christ. That's it. And your hope needs to be cemented in that. And so I hope your hope is. I really hope that when you leave here in a moment, 
that your hope is cemented in the work of Christ and what he has done for you. Not what somebody else has done, not what your parents believed, but by faith that you believe in Jesus as the one who would say, it is finished. And you cement your everything on that statement, that it's finished, it's over. It's not about me. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna sing a song to close this morning. But I hope you're able to rejoice in the Lord like Paul would, understanding these truths today. God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Jesus. And God, I just pray for those who are listening this morning and even myself as I preach this message, just thinking of the difficulty I have in my life oftentimes with this, of joy. God, I want people to see that in my life. I want them to see that I have great joy in what you have done for me. God, you, you know me, you know me very personally, and you know that's not always my bent, that's not always my emotions. Just, but God, I pray that you would help in my life, help me not to fall prey to Satan's lies that that means I don't have joy. Because I know that's not true because of the promise of your word. And so God, for those here this morning it was very obvious at times, just a joy in their life. I pray that they would keep up at it because people like me need that. That they would be overflowing with that. And God, I pray that you would help grow me and change me to maybe feel that way more often. God, it doesn't change the fact of what you've done for me. And so God, this morning, I know there's many Christians here. I pray that their hope is cemented in you, that they understand that. And that it does cause them to rejoice and to be excited of, of what you have done and the promises that, that, you have, that you have made for us. God, help us not to fall prey to those lies. Help us to be trusting in you for everything. And God, no doubt this morning there are people here who by faith have not trusted in Christ as their Savior. Their sins have not been forgiven because they've tried other avenues than Christ to be forgiven. They've done it in themselves. They've done it maybe through parents. They've done it through church attendance or whatever it might be. God, I pray this morning you would open their eyes up to that truth of the gospel, that the work has been accomplished for them on the cross and through the resurrection, that they would put their hope and faith and trust in, in Jesus and his finished work, that you would justify them, that you would reconcile them, that you would save them. And God, I know that that causes us to rejoice knowing that you do that and you're faithful to that. So we trust you with that this morning. God, as we sing this last song where we will be singing about rejoicing, I pray that it would be real in our hearts and our souls and our mind. God, you deserve to be praised. You deserve all adoration at a time where we give praise to people all the time. I know it's the end of the year and we start person of the year and this and that and that. God, nobody compares to you what you've done for us through Jesus. So God, as we close in this song, help us to rejoice. Help us to praise you the best that we can to worship you, the one who came as a baby, fully God and fully man, entered in to the story to save us. 
God, we thank you. Help us to praise you now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.